supporting WHYY Penn Medicine, helping to find new cures for cancer. With life-saving clinical trials and advanced surgical techniques, Penn Medicine is offering more hope for patients everywhere. Learn more at PennMedicine.org slash cancer. Penn Medicine, what's next? This is Grapple, and I'm Naomi Starobin. When we decided to launch Grapple, we knew we'd hear a lot of stories about the challenges that people in distressed communities are facing. But we also knew that we wanted to bring you stories about what communities are doing to come back. And our two guests today are all about that idea. Longtime Atlantic Magazine writers Deborah and James Fallows have been traveling around the United States for the past three years in a single-engine propeller plane to find out how America is putting itself back together. Their project is called American Futures, and they join us now from the Atlantic Studios in Washington, D.C. Welcome, Deb and Jim. Thanks, Naomi. Happy to be here. And me too. So your single-engine propeller plane lands, and you get out, or maybe you've made some arrangements ahead of time. What has been your approach to uncovering what you're looking for in these communities? Usually when we land, we'll go around together on the first few interviews. We'll try to see the mayor and the editors of the newspaper, maybe somebody from the Chamber of Commerce, to just get a sense of what the town is like and what the issues are, which are often quite different from the idea we had when we started. Then we'll split up and go in different directions. And Jim goes off to cover what I consider the, the more hard news of the finances behind the town and the economics of how they are hoping to recover. And I'll go for what I would say are the softer parts, which are the arts, the schools, and the libraries, and some of the town institutions, and try to cover the territory that way. You've been on the go now for about three years with this project, and you seem to be giving a view of America that not a lot of people get to see or even realize that they need to understand about the country. So what's the narrative that you've been hearing and seeing? Tell us about that. I'll tell you first a word of background. We've been living in China for a number of years before we started this project, and we spent a lot of time there just out on the road in buses and trains, just going to the hinterland of China and saying, what did it seem like if you weren't in Shanghai and Beijing, where almost all the foreign coverage came from? When we came back to the U.S., the narrative we'd heard in China and also in the U.S. was essentially America falling apart in every single way. So we thought, what would it look like if you went sort of the way we'd done it in China, if you traveled around to places that had challenges? In Pennsylvania, it could be Allentown or Erie, and in Mississippi and in South Carolina and the Dakotas, other places that had some sort of economic or environmental or other cultural challenge. And I think the main theme we've been trying to convey, which we were skeptical of for a while, but we've seen enough to really believe it, is people think that what they hear about the U.S. is that it's troubled in general, but what they know about most of the places they've been is the troubles are real, but the movement is positive, that most people feel as if they're getting some control over the future of their communities and their regions. As I read about what you've found over the past three years, it seems like there are common traits that make certain towns more livable. And I guess that's the crux of it for you. So maybe describe some of those characteristics. In the article I did in The Atlantic earlier this year, I had an 11-point checklist, which I assembled somewhat haphazardly, but but ended up being things that, that actually had some resonance uh, in d- different places. We've been la- large and small that felt as if they were moving in, in the same direction. I mean, for example, one of them was that national politics, you know, as we all speak here before the uh, presidential election, are so poisonous and paralyzing on the national scale, they don't really seem to come up in a lot of the cities. Or people set them aside. And we were struck when we went around, even in a lot of you know very red states, that the idea of 
what was happening in the national scene didn't come up. The idea of people having a sense of civic patriotism, they knew the story of the town, they knew the drama it had been through, and they had a sense of the direction they were going, and and downtown projects and a lot of others. One of the things I sort of threw in at the last moment as a, uh, a marker of a city on the way back was that whether it had a craft brewing industry, which sounds um, facetious, and it's because I'm a big craft brew fan. But also, I think it's an interesting proxy for several other things. You have entrepreneurs who will set that up. You have enough people of a certain age uh, to be interested in it. And also, craft brewing serves the same role that arts communities often do of sort of colonizing bedraggled areas of town and bringing people there. So we, we had uh, different sort of high road and low road markers of what, what makes uh, places go. So the one thing which we didn't talk about in that article, but we've come more and more to impress us, is the debilitating or empowering idea of negative self-image. A lot of the places we've been think poorly of themselves, and it's sort of used that as a motivating factor. But in some other cases, that's been a sea anchor around their necks. And we certainly run across that in our reporting in Pennsylvania. Um, and it's, sometimes it feels like a, an excuse to not try new things. Other times people sort of get angry when they hear that and they say, you know, that's enough of that. Yeah. And what we've usually found in these towns is that the older part of the population are the ones who kind of grab onto this, whereas the younger people are pretty quickly getting fed up with it and say, I don't want to talk that way about my town anymore. We've got a lot going on here, and if we keep whining in that fashion, we're never going to get anywhere. So you do get this kind of demographic split. And linguistically, it's a really curious thing of how people in the town will often deliberately try to take on this negative self-image with explicit language. For example, up in Eastport, Maine, which is a very tiny town, so you can kind of do this kind of thing effectively, only 1,300 people, they decided that they would stop using words that begin with D-E, like deny, decline, deplore, because that was always the preface to declining Eastport, and replace them with words that started with R-E, like renew, re invent, reinvigorate, and actually try to, you know, do this in not only in talking, but in the newspaper and in things they wrote, papers about the town or whatever was going on, to forcibly push the language as one of the factors for changing the self-image. Just to go back to the microbreweries point a little bit, because that, of course, makes me think of millennials and the fact that it's so important for these communities to attract and keep millennials, uh, among other people. What are you seeing with young people? Are you seeing young people leave and come back? Are you seeing them stay? And if so, why? And how do communities get people to stay? So the answer would be yes, we're seeing all of those things. But I think the combination of them is interesting and has been a surprise to us because, again, the national level narrative has been that if you are a hotshot you're going to go to one of the big coastal cities. You'll go to D.C. for politics and Seattle or San Francisco for tech, et cetera, et cetera. And certainly some of that migration is still going on. But we saw a very substantial number of people who were deciding there's a way in which I can do first-rate business someplace other than these big cities, and I can have a much better overall life bargain because of the combination the real estate differential is so dramatic. There are, uh, you know, the, the possibilities of dispersed business through uh, through the internet, et cetera, are taking a more hold. And we found many, many places where 
the particular character of that place was the basis for this. And I'll, I'll give you just two or three examples. In Fresno, California, Fresno you can think of as any declining image you have of sort of coal belt Pennsylvania you would find in Fresno, too. It was sort of the part of California the rest of the state looked down on, and that was a real part of their challenge and self-image. But they're also in the center of the most productive agricultural land, you know, perhaps in the world, in the Central Valley, California. And so they are combining their agricultural strength to have a tech industry matched by the fact that people can start up a business there for just a tiny fraction of the cost of doing it in San Francisco or L.A. And so you have this migration of people to to the biggest cities, but then a reverse flow of people to Fresno and to Erie and to Duluth and to Greenville and to Mississippi and other places because of the different overall life balance they can have there. And a couple interesting things happen with that, too. It's not these young people, in quotes, are just moving back on their own, but you find a a very welcoming sense in the whole atmosphere of the town that there are older people who are in positions of authority, like the mayors and the bankers, the kind of founding fathers of the town, who recognize and welcome that this new generation and energy coming in is what's going to keep their town moving forward. And then they'll deliberately help out these young people with bank loans or locating warehouses that are abandoned or vacant. So we're talking about welcoming entrepreneurs and small business ideas. Exactly. And to reinforce what Deb is saying, you know, we're obviously talking about places we've seen that are moving in the right direction rather than ones that that aren't. But one of the traits I mentioned in my Atlantic piece was that the places we've seen that are feel as if they're moving in the right direction, one of these clear traits is they deliberately make themselves open in all senses of that term, open to refugees, open to people of different races, uh, making themselves open in um, political ways too. Holland, Michigan is a very conservative town, but they sort of defying a lot of local pressure to pass a sort of pro-gay rights ordinance because they thought that's what their design industries needed to thrive. So a conscious openness was really a sort of heartening American trait in many of these places. What have you seen in terms of immigrants settling in towns that you've gone to? How much are they helping turn around some of these places? If there's any gospel I wish I could go around the country and preach right now and in the weeks before the election is the contrast between the national political tone about um, immigration and what you see community by community. It really struck us how impressively the process of incorporating immigrants and refugees was going on in so much of the country and how the dread of this seems to be a theoretical fear about some threat. But city by city, I'll give you just just two or three illustrations. We were in Dodge City, Kansas, which is now a majority Latino community. And it's going to vote for Donald Trump. It's a very conservative area. But the white people there say that we're all in this together, that if they didn't have all the the immigrants, mainly from Mexico, who've come there to work in the meat industry, their city wouldn't exist. And the mainly white electorate of the town passed a huge new bond issue for the mainly Latino population school district because the state was cutting funding. And if you didn't know the tone of national politics and you just were judging city by city, I think you would view this as another era in American history where talent is being absorbed and basically accepted and developed as part of the way communities um, revive themselves. 
Let's talk a little bit about leadership. As you've been describing and as we've been seeing in our reporting uh, in many communities in Pennsylvania, you see community leaders at the local level, maybe they traditionally have not gotten along. They seem to be pushing politics aside. They're finding common ground, turning their communities around. Are you seeing that? What's driving it? Is it something that you think there needs to be more of? That is one of the keys of all of these cities that are on the comeback is collaboration is probably the word we hear most in the last three years as we've gone around these towns. And I think it's an essential ingredient to making things work is that you do get the cooperation among all the different parties. And word gets around, you know, in a town even of 100,000 people, of the, the caring and the generosity and the activity that people care about each other enough to step up to just kind of build the, I hate to use the word texture or fabric, but, but that's what it is. And one more thing on this collaboration. It's such an overused word. In Columbus, Ohio, where I was talking with some young shop owners who were in the short north, and they were talking about how they get together with the shops across the street, and they collab. They even had to cut down the word collaborate, and they just say collab now. So given everything that you've been telling us, let's talk about the importance of what we call public-private partnerships. What role are those partnerships playing in the communities you visited? This also was a strong theme we saw that seemed to transcend, again, the normal political divisions where things that have happened in important ways in U.S. history have involved both uh, public guidance of one kind or another, where it's building highways or building dams or having uh, research funds for medicine or aerospace or whatever. And then, of course, the private initiative to, to make it happen. And you see that while at just the same time it seems to be uh, in jeopardy at the uh, federal level. You do see it city by city. So I'll give an example of Wichita, Kansas, where we were a little while ago. Wichita is the home base of the Koch brothers, and the city really reflects their mark. But you have there Wichita State University, which is sort of the educational um, you know, mainspring of, of Wichita in that part of Kansas, is working with the, the airplane manufacturers there, Cessna and Beach and some others are there, and with a bunch of new sort of robotics and high-tech companies to find ways to publicly guide the research from these private companies and then also work with them to have apprenticeships for students, including from disadvantaged areas. And just there is a kind of collaboration which seems poisoned at the national level level, but is quite uh, vital state by state. And you see it you know, up in, in the Northwest in ways to kind of repurpose people who used to be working in forestry jobs aren't doing that anymore. In Mississippi, where there's a really impressive partnership among some of the big manufacturers there, a truck engine factory, a helicopter factory, and the local universities and the local school systems. So this idea of actual collaboration, which we think of as foreign to the U.S., you do see quite impressively city by city. And it seems like um, you have institutions like schools that in some places are not very fluid, not able to pivot very quickly. But here, you're describing places where they're looking at the job market and changes to the local economy and economic development and saying, we need to be more fluid, we need to pivot and train people this way as opposed to that way. We're seeing lots of different versions of this. One of the questions we ask when we go to a city is we say, who makes this place go? You know, who are the people we should talk with? And there's a range of different things. For example, there are a number of cities where a strong mayor really is the center of, of what's going on there. Uh, Greenville, South Carolina, they've had a tradition of them. Right now in Fresno, California, there's a very uh, successful 
liberal Republican female mayor named Ashley Swearingen, who's, who's in charge of things. In Duluth, Minnesota, it's a strong mayor system. There's other places where the mayor, you know, his, his or her name doesn't really come up. And I won't single out those cities for reasons of not giving them offense. But places people don't talk about the mayor. They talk about a certain business leader or a certain university president or whatever. For a city to work, there has to be some kind of leader. And we see them in all sorts of forms, sometimes mayors, sometimes people with no official position at all. So tell us how you're feeling about the United States now compared to before you embarked on this tour. I'd say when we embarked on this tour, we had an inkling that there was a lot more positive action going on than we heard. Even in the hardest press places like San Bernardino, like Fresno, you find these positive, hopeful, heartfelt, energetic clusters of people. And you think this is going to work, or at least it's going to get better, that there is some element of the traditional American spirit that started this country the way it was that is still very, very strong and evident in people there, that they're willing to take risks, they're willing to be generous, they're willing to go out on their own and be creative and work with each other. There is such a generosity of one by one in these towns that is missing from the, quote, national dialogue that we usually hear these days, that we feel more confident in saying this now than we did three years ago. It's gone from an inkling to an absolute statement. And I would agree with what Deb says and, and add, too, that I think we are positive as opposed to Pollyannish. You know, at every stage in the U.S. history, it's had serious problems. We had a civil war. We've always had poverty. We've always had injustice. And we have all those things now. But there's a sense of people feeling as if it's in their capacity to move things in the right direction rather than the wrong direction. And I think that sensibility, which we've become so convinced of, as Deb is saying, is what we'd like to convey more broadly and why we're glad to have a chance to talk with you. Well, thank you, Deb and Jim, for taking time to join us. Our pleasure. Thank you. Deborah and James Fallows are writers for The Atlantic magazine. For more about their reporting on how America is putting itself back together, you can follow their work at AmericanFutures.org. That wraps up our show. And if you're liking Grapple so far, please be sure to rate it and review us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen. We appreciate your support and we welcome your feedback. Grapple is produced by Keystone Crossroads in association with Cuvenda Media. Support for Keystone Crossroads comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. The music on our show is composed by Tony Trove and Mike Vivas. Special thanks to WHYY's Al Banks for engineering our show and to Charlie Kyer for his help post-production. Our executive producer is Stephanie Marudis of Cuvenda Media, and I'm Naomi Starobin, editor of Keystone Crossroads. Thanks for listening. <laughs>